During the month of February, we will be exploring the theme of justice as part of our year-long series on what matters most. So I've chosen four short scripture lessons from different parts of the Bible to be, help us begin our exploration. The first comes from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 33 through 34. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The book of the prophet Amos, chapter 5, verse 24. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The book of the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. God has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, verse 18, these are words of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. In the name of God, the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to take us back in time to 1954. That's the year when Coretta Scott King and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. arrived in Montgomery, Alabama, so that Dr. King could begin his work as the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. His congregation was so excited to welcome him to their pulpit, and they had great expectations for their ministry together. Some years ago, I visited Dexter Avenue Baptist Church with my son Kyle when we were on a civil rights tour through the southern part of the United States. When we arrived in the part of the city where the church is located, the building that first caught my attention was the Capitol Building for the state of Alabama. There at the top of the avenue, this enormous, domed, handsome structure dominates the whole scene. But off to the side, modestly positioned, a somewhat modest building, there's Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which nevertheless had such a huge significance for the civil rights movement. In 1955, Dr. King had only been in Montgomery for a little over a year. He became the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. I think there was a clergy meeting when he drew the short straw. Now that, that association became the base for the Montgomery bus boycott sparked by the refusal of a young woman named Rosa Parks to relinquish her seat to a white passenger on a city bus. Dr. King agreed to become the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association because he was assured that the boycott would last for only one day. It lasted for 13 grueling months. And his leadership of that boycott, at least in the very early stages, could hardly be described as aggressive, probably tentative would be the better word. 
As president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, Dr. King made clear in his first set of demands, which were presented to the national city bus lines, that the protest was not about challenging segregation. What he was really trying to do was to create the space where people could start riding the buses again and get to work and get home from work. The NAACP found his demands so weak that they refused to endorse the list. In the 12th month of the boycott, Dr. King was so discouraged by the lack of progress and discouraged by himself and his own leadership that he submitted his resignation. It wasn't accepted but that didn't do much to boost his morale. However, something did happen to him at that time in January of 1956 that would enable him to see his way through to the successful conclusion of the Montgomery bus boycott and would become a source of inspiration for him for his entire life and ministry. This event is described by the civil rights historian, Charles Marsh. One night, King returned home to his parsonage around midnight after a long day of organizational meetings. His wife and young daughter were already in bed and King was eager to get some sleep. But a threatening call, the kind of call he was getting as many as 30 to 40 times a day, interrupted his attempt to get some much needed rest. When he tried to go back to bed, for some reason he could not shake the threatening voice that kept repeating the hateful words in his head. King got up, made a pot of coffee, and sat down at his kitchen table. With his head buried in his hands, he cried out to God there in his kitchen in the middle of the night. When he had by his own account come to the end of his strength, King met the living Christ in an experience that would carry him through the remainder of his life. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. King later recalled, he promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, no, never alone. In the stillness of the Alabama night, the voice of Jesus proved more convincing than the threatening voice of the anonymous caller. The voice of Jesus gave him the courage to press through the tumultuous year of 1956 to the victorious end of the Montgomery bus boycott. More than that, it gave him a vision for ministry that would drive him for the rest of his life. I have two observations about that story. The civil rights movement was a spiritual movement. It is a, was a movement in which people were strengthened by a force of love that Dr. King called the cosmic companionship of God, reaching out to people all across the world and to the dear earth itself. And through the songs that people sang in church services, the prayers they prayed and the dynamic preaching that they heard, they were galvanized to become a force for good leading to greater justice. And the civil rights movement was a justice movement. What started with a bus boycott became a movement to dismantle segregation across the entire United States of America, to change the laws as well as the attitudes that prevented people of color from enjoying the same rights and resources and privileges as their white counterparts. A spiritual movement 
with spiritual values like the ones we've been exploring during these past months at Round Hill Community Church and a justice movement rooted in the justice of God. That combination of energies brought about tremendous change for the better for our nation. It became a source of inspiration for similar movements all across the world and that continues right up to this day. And those energies for love, for justice, for endurance and resilience, these are still available to us as we seek to right the wrongs of our own time. Dr. King started out as a pastor of a local congregation with a relatively limited vision. He evolved into a justice warrior, not because he wanted to take that journey, but because he felt that this was his calling from God and that God would support him along the way. Whenever I have seen statues or sculptures dedicated to Dr. King from San Francisco to Selma, it seems like they're almost always accompanied by this single verse from the Bible. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. That little bit of poetry comes from the book of the prophet Amos, written hundreds of years before Jesus, but very important to Dr. King. It was a source of inspiration. It reminded him of his calling to be a pastor with an orientation towards justice. In the language of biblical Hebrew, the word for justice is mishpat. And it's a word that has many different kinds of meanings. It's rich with nuance. But at its core, it is a word that describes the character of God, the heart of God. Mishpat is the work of holding the world to God's standards. Compassion for all people, equality for all people, fairness for all people, equal access to resources for all people. When I think of justice, I think not only of being aware of those things in the world where people are denied their basic rights, but I think of also of following the wrong to its root. As an example, maybe people in a particular community somewhere are getting sick. They discover and they believe that they're getting sick from the drinking water in town. Then they begin to ask the question, what or who is contaminating that water? Who wants to pay attention to that and who wants to make sure that nobody pays attention to that? Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who for so many years in the country of South Africa stood against the racial injustice of apartheid, which was a government-sanctioned policy, once said, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. Or maybe we could say why they're being pushed in. In other words, what's wrong at the source, at the root of the problem? The prophet Micah, who also lived many hundreds of years before Jesus, gave a special prominence to this word mishpat in his writings. He said, God has told you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, some churches use that phrase as their mission statement. Why spend hundreds of dollars 
or hundreds of hours trying to figure out a unique mission statement when there's a perfectly good one from the prophet Micah. And then these same congregations will develop opportunities for people of all ages, from young ones to the elders, to explore this requirement of which Micah speaks, that justice is required by God. And they develop their faith formation programs to help people become engaged in programs and opportunities that implement justice. Sometimes these congregations that give this prominence to that single verse conduct their annual review in order to discover how every area of the church's life is tuned in to the melody of God's passion for a world of equality, harmony, civility, and the equal sharing of resources. We may respond to the call of justice, as did Martin Luther King in his early years, with hesitation, tentativeness, or we may eventually respond to it, as he did, by allowing it to become a greater force in our lives. Because sometimes it just comes to us as it did for him, because we're in the right place at the right time. That's ha what happened to a woman I came to know in Hartford, Connecticut, named Barbara. Barbara had moved to Hartford from New York City just because she wanted to be closer to her parents. In their elder years, they were needing help. And she said, well, I can, I can move my business to Hartford and, and help you. And she moved into an apartment building in the Asylum Hill neighborhood of Hartford, into a part of the city which was really beleaguered and under-resourced in significant ways. Barbara started to notice that. She started to wonder why she had moved into this particular area. Could she make a difference there? She felt like she was only one person. But one day, while she was walking out in front of the little library that was located in that neighborhood in the city, she saw a small and very sickly looking patch of grass in front of the neighborhood. And she thought to herself, I'm gonna make that look better. And so she did. And then she went on to another project and another project and they got bigger and bigger. And eventually Barbara became an almost full-time community organizer, advocating for people in her neighborhood. It wasn't what she had moved to Hartford to do, but somehow she felt it as a calling and she embraced it. Sometimes we're also drawn to the work of justice because we come in, become involved in an act of caring for someone else that then inspires us to ask some annoying questions about the way things are. A justice movement might start off as a tutoring program in an urban school, in an under-resourced neighborhood. And one day those adult tutors meet up after they finish their work and they go to have coffee together and they start talking and they start asking questions like, why is this school so lacking in resources compared to its suburban counterparts? Why are some children learning their lessons in a janitor, store, janitor storage closet? I've seen that happen, by the way. Why don't the children and their families have access to good stores in their neighborhoods and fresh fruits and vegetables? Why, why, why? When we start asking those questions, we may find ourselves on a journey. We might have to ask ourselves, how do, far do we want this thing to go? I'm absolutely certain there were many times that Martin Luther King Jr. came home after a day of work and thought, do I really have what it takes to be part of this? 
Do I want to put myself through this? Do I want to put my family through this? When we notice that things aren't right, and we start digging around for information about why that's so, and choose not to rest easy with answers like, well, it's the way things are. It's the way things have always been. It is what it is. Well, when we start pushing back against those standard replies, then the movement of God starts to move in us. Justice is best described as the movement of God that spills over from personal care to public witness. We discover what our ancestors have discovered, that a quest for justice rooted in the life of a justice-seeking God is one of the most powerful sources of change on the planet. Maybe it's our one uh, most renewable resource. And we discover that on the journey to justice, everyone benefits. We become closer to one another. We understand each other better. We're better able to respond to need wherever it occurs. Not just treating symptoms, but going right to the root causes. Of all the values we have explored thus far as part of our year-long series, What Matters Most, values like generosity, gratitude, imagination, I would imagine that the call to justice represents the greatest stretch for us. I get that. It's the one most likely to fill us with uneasiness. Are we up for that? Generosity, yes. Gratitude, yes. Oh, I love to use my imagination, yes. But justice, that seems big. If I could put the call of justice in artistic terms, it's like moving from sketchbook, from working in a sketchbook as an artist to a big canvas. The work that artists do in sketchbooks can be beautiful, breathtaking. But sometimes you've got to work on a big canvas. In one of the art buildings on the campus of Bennington College, there's a painting by Helen Frankenthaler, one of our great American artists. She was a student at Bennington College. This painting must be 30 feet wide by 15 feet high. When you walk into the building in which it is located, there is just no missing it. And in some ways, it's just such a powerful invitation to the power of art making. Tim Irwin is an art dealer who lives and works in Los Angeles, and he and I have a favorite artist in common. And he mentioned to me in a conversation at one point, he said, so have you ever worked on a big canvas? It was an interesting question because actually the answer was no. I've tended to work on smaller canvases. But I think sometimes this is the kind of question that comes to us in our lives as it did for Dr. King. Have you ever worked on a big canvas? So sometimes discovering justice is like becoming part of a big painting. I'm thinking about some of the murals that I've seen from the train going into New York City that take up the entire side of a building and communicate some message that was created by the artist when they created that painting. Very, very powerful. But I also want to say, as an artist, that justice can also feel like creating something like a collage, which is smaller but can also have a very powerful message. 
And there's a collage that we've created for our order of service this Sunday that we've included as part of our order of service. And it's by a man named Kurt Schwitters. Now the interesting thing about collage is that they're made up of lots of different sizes of paper and materials, pieces, various sizes, shapes, colors, all fitted together for a wholeness, for something that looks beautiful and pleasing. And looking at it, you would think, well, how, how is it that all those different materials could come together and create something that looks harmonious? But that's part of the gift of the artist to make that happening, to happen. And Kurt Schwitters could do that. He was a, a German artist. He was forced to flee Germany uh, during the Second World War. He eventually made his way to the United Kingdom and died there. But he was a person who let the art spirit in and it inspired him to create all these beautiful collages, even though he lived most of his latter years in internment camps. He created these collages and then gave them to people, which in turn gave them joy. I think we can let the justice spirit find us like the creative spirit found Kirch Vitters as he created those collages. It can inspire us, uh, even when we feel otherwise engaged, to join with other people of other backgrounds and other interests to create something beautiful that addresses an injustice in the world. We're letting that justice spirit in as part of our service of worship today by listening to ancient voices of scripture, exploring these texts, listening to the lives of those who've gone before us. We're doing it through the songs we sing and the prayers we pray. And these can be ways of signaling to God that we're ready for the justice journey. Even though we might find it a little bit unsettling, even though we might not feel that we're up for it, even though it might be mighty inconvenient. But I've begun to realize in my own life right now that if there is some way in my life that I can dedicate my resources, gifts, skills, whatever they might be, to the heart of a justice-seeking God, then that's what I want. I want to be able to use every ounce of available energy to do that. And I hope you'll join me in that dream in whatever way that that might be possible. Those who have gone before us, the justice warriors, children and adults, they know how we feel. They're right here with us to say, it's okay, I understand this justice thing, it's big and it can be daunting. But they would remind us that God needs us, that God trusts us, that God will help us, will not leave us alone on this journey any more than Dr. King was left alone. So let's welcome justice into our lives in whatever way possible. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen.